All right, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hello, Sister Senia, how are you? Good, me too. It's because you know the Lord, right? That's it. 1 Thess 5, chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. I'd invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. In those Bibles, I believe you turn to page 986. That'll bring you to our text so that you can follow along with me this morning. By the way, I have an announcement as well. Um, We have a Tentatively, we have a baptism, or we are going to be doing a baptism on June 16th at Eric Davis's home, I believe at uh, 2 p.m. I was just looking for Eric Davis for confirmation, but I don't know if he's in here. Um, so, but that, I believe, is the case, and Eric, yeah, it's 2.0, 1.0, actually. He's 2.0. I saw you look at him, but it's not him. Yeah, so. And by the way, stick to your literal translation of Genesis, brother. I want to support you in that. Six days creation. Yep. Okay. But uh, yeah, so that's June 16th. So why am I saying that? If you have, if you are a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, and you have not yet been baptized, you need to be. That's the bottom line. So we, if you want to be baptized, you have questions about that, we would love to talk to you about that and fit you in, if possible, to this June 16th date. If that date doesn't work for you, but you want to be baptized, that's okay too. Let us know and we will speak with you and we'll work out another date. So let's, let's dive on in. I, uh, I hope uh, that this message today, as the one a few weeks ago as well, I hope that it might spur you on to study the matter of eschatology, eschatology further. Uh, not simply to satisfy your curiosity, uh, but rather for your spiritual growth and maturity, eschatology. Eschatology, what is that? Well, I didn't expect an answer, and that's okay, because, you know, I do ask questions and expect you to answer, but thank you, Uh, but I didn't hear all the answers, so my hearing's going, but eschatology is the study of last things, last things. It is the, to be more specific, it is the uh, subject concerning biblical predictive prophecy, Biblical predictive prophecy concerning the end times or end time events. Uh, Last Sunday, Mother's Day, I did a message called God's Word and Godly Mothers. We looked at 2 Timothy 3.16. You might remember that passage, and we learned there as part of that message that all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for Training in righteousness, all scripture, that would include eschatology, eschatology. And so I know eschatology can be uh, maybe complicated, it certainly is. In some cases, it's complicated to kind of wrap your mind around all that the Bible says about these end time events. There are not, uh, we are not informed about everything, so that's where some confusion maybe comes or curiosity that can't really be satisfied, but nonetheless, eschatology or um, information about what is going to occur at the end of the age is all throughout the scriptures, and it's important. If, if for nothing else, beloved, and we'll talk about this a little bit towards the end, but if for nothing else, it, even in your study of it, even if you're you know, trying to work through it and you don't feel like you've got it all together, but even just working through it, 
it grounds you. It grounds you. It reminds you of where we're headed. Okay? Where the end of this thing is, is going to end up. Uh, I think, personally, and I'll just give my own testimony. I, I, I don't know about you, but this is true for me. I live here, right? In the here and now, and I easily find myself just being lost in it. Like, this is it. And when that happens, I, I can tend to go off course. I lose my focus. I lose my real purpose for why I have been left here for a period of time. So even just in studying those things, as you're working through them, I think it's good in the sense that it builds you up and instructs you and teaches you and corrects you, corrects your mind to move your focus from the here and now only, as if this is all there is, as if this is what it's about, to the age to come, to the things that are coming with certainty. So, I have recommended a few books to you in the past. I'll recommend you, them to you again. Understanding End Times Prophecy is a good resource by Paul N. Benware. Understanding End Times Prophecy. Another one is, and, uh, is He Will Reign Forever, A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God by Michael Vlock. Okay, both of those are available from various bookstores. You certainly can find them on Amazon as well. Today, we are going to focus on the first four verses of 1 Thessalonians 5, but just so you're aware, verses 1 through 11 are a unit of thought. They're a unit of thought, but we're just going to focus on the first four. They go together. We'll come back to the section next week to uh, deal with the remainder of the verses. This section of the letter addresses a new aspect of the same subject discussed at the end of chapter 4. And that is the coming again of Christ. The coming again of Christ. His future coming. And I'll say some stuff today where, and I won't explain it all because I just can't possibly address every matter or detail with you in the time uh, that I have. But I hope that if you have questions, it'll again spur you on to do more research. But I think some confusion comes around the understanding of his coming in the sense that there are two phases, if you will, uh, to his second coming. There are two phases, two phases. His appearing before the tribulation, spoken of in Revelation, the tribulation, and his return to the earth at the end of the tribulation. Two phases to his coming This first phase of his promised coming will bring both deliverance, which we read about at the end of chapter 4, or the catching away of those in Christ, the rapture, and simultaneously, this phase of his coming will open the door to God's judgment and wrath. That's the beginning of chapter 5, or the day of the Lord. Which one of these is experienced by humanity when Christ comes, either the coming deliverance or the coming wrath, will depend solely on one's relationship with Christ. With Christ. Let's read the text. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4. 
Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise, or another way to translate it is, overtake you like a thief. The focus of today's message will be on that phrase found there in verse 2, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Again, these are eschatological matters. First off, something simple. The day of the Lord should not be understood as only a single day in history. It's not a day, but rather a period of time that will take place in history. And as Paul stated there in the text, this period of time will come upon the world like a thief in the night, suddenly and at a time that cannot be predetermined. One writer says, no prior signal will occur to alert people to the proximity of the day just as no warning comes before a house-breaking thief enters. Well, what else about this day can we learn about or know? One writer says this, the biblical phrase, the day of the Lord, stands as a key term in understanding God's revelation, his written revelation that we have in the scriptures, of the future. It's a key term to understanding what he says about the end of times. The New Testament writer's use of the day of the Lord, such as the Apostle Paul, rested on their understanding of the Old Testament prophets. A survey of the Old Testament indicates that the prophets used it that phrase, when speaking of both near historical events within history and far future eschatological events. The New Testament writers picked up on the eschatological use, last times, in times, use of our use and applied the day of the Lord to the coming judgment at the end of the age. Day of the Lord. So, the Old Testament prophets' use of the phrase, the day of the Lord, provided them the foundation for the New Testament references, such as the one we see here in 1 Thess 5. So, I thought it would be good to look at a few passages in the Old Testament to better understand then the general character of what Paul referred to as the day of the Lord in this section of 1 Thessalonians, all right? So in the book of Isaiah, as an example, the day of the Lord is seen there as the day of God's judgment. This is a near fulfillment at that time, a day of God's judgment that would come upon one of Israel's enemies, specifically Babylon. But I'm reading this to you not to deal with everything that's in this section. I'm reading it to you specifically so that you can see what is associated 
with the day of the Lord, so that when we read about it now in the New Testament, we can understand the character of what that day might be like, all right? So in Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 13, it says the oracle, the prophet Isaiah, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw on a bare hill. So here's the the oracle, here's the prophecy. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger. Just so you know, this is God, okay? This is God's anger. My proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Verse 6. Wail for the day of the Lord. There's the phrase. Is near as destruction from the Almighty It will come, there's certainty. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look, by the way, does that phrase sound familiar? Sure, yeah, because we just read about that phrase, right? We'll come back to it. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will give their light. The sun will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Heavy language, yeah? I will make people more rare than fine gold. This is God saying this. And mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. All related to the day of the Lord and his judgment upon wicked Babylon. Another passage associated with the day of the Lord is found in Zephaniah. And this section, here we kind of have a reverse situation, seems to point to uh, the near fulfillment in history at that time when, uh, when Babylon would be used to, this wicked nation, be used as a, 
instrument of God's judgment against Judah or the southern kingdom of God's people, Israel. In uh, chapter 1, verse 4 of Zephaniah, uh, it says there, I will stretch out my hand, God is saying, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and again all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he's coming against the nation in judgment because of their apostasy, uh, turning away from the Lord, and then turning unto pagan gods, false gods, their idolatry, which, as it always does, led to moral and ethical corruption, as one writer points out. Uh, So this judgment now is coming against God's very nation. So on one hand, we see the day of the Lord in reference to judgment, against uh, the enemies of Israel. Now it's against Israel itself. And we'll read there, again, just looking at the character of the day of the Lord as we read these passages. In verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, right? You know, just see the imagery. You know, the mighty man, he never cries. Not on this day. A day of wrath is that day, the day of the Lord. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Whew, that's heavy, man. And I can't give you any relief because we're focused on the day of the Lord. I'll give you some at the end, okay? At the end, you have to wait. But right now, feel it. You should feel that weight, the heaviness of it. That's why it's important for us to read all of the scriptures, you know, all of them, from Genesis to Revelation. These are important passages as we understand God and his character and the coming judgment. In connection with this day of the Lord, chapter 2 of Zephaniah, here God, he's gracious, so he invites his people to repent before they are forced to experience this day, this period of time. But again, just to point out the language that's used to describe it, in Zephaniah 2, verses 1 and 3, it says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, of the Lord. He's still talking about the day of the Lord, but now referencing and referred to it as the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Burning anger, right? 
burning anger. I just think about, you know, I, even as I read these passages, I think about how in some places God is spoken of, you know, just this nice, friendly guy. You know, we talk about God as love, and he is, but often that's not taken into consideration of all else that God is. Even the idea of God's holy anger, I think it, I think it bothers many people, right? They don't want to hear about this aspect of God, but God is angry against sin and unrepentant sinners. His anger burns. That's what the scriptures teach. Now, speaking specifically of Paul's use, the Apostle Paul's use of that phrase, the day of the Lord, again, picked up from the Old Testament prophet's use, but speaking specifically now of the passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, I wanted to provide you some of what other Bible scholars have said about that specific day or period of time in the end, just to help you in in grasping all that it means. One writer adds this. I'll have several quotes now. The day of the Lord is a future period of time in which God will be at work in world affairs more directly and dramatically than he has been since the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to directly be involved in what happens on this planet in a way that will be very dramatic. And based on what I just read, you saw it, just a couple of passages, we could have read more. Uh, Things are going to break loose on this earth in a way that they have not at any time in history, and God will be directly involved in this event. Another writer adds this, the day of the Lord is the period of time in the future when the Lord will intervene in the events of this earth to consummate, that is a word that just means bring to a state of completion, to consummate his redemption and his judgment. His judgment, the day of the Lord. Another writer adds this, as a prophetic period, the day of the Lord is inaugurated, inaugurated. It means begins or is introduced, okay? The day of the Lord is inaugurated with the rapture, with the rapture of the church as described in the section just prior to this section. Chapter four, verses 13 through 18. The day of the Lord then would cover the time of the great tribulation and involves his return to earth and the establishment of his messianic reign. In this passage, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is dealing only with the judgment aspect of that day, God's wrath, God's anger that will be poured out in various ways at various times during this period of time called the day of the Lord. Another writer adds this, this day is a major theme of prophecy, the day of the Lord, 
with its fullest exposition in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. What's recorded there in chapter 6 through 19? The judgments and events of the tribulation. The tribulation. Finally, this quote, as history continues to unfold the eternally planned purposes of God, that God's totally in control, right? It's unfolding according to his plan. He's not out of control. One event looms large on the horizon, the day of the Lord. That event will mark the end of man's day as God acts in judgment to take back direct control of the earth from the usurpers, both human and demonic, who presently rule it. It will be an unprecedented time of cataclysmic judgment on all unrepentant sinners. Now, looking back at the text itself specifically, looking back at verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says there, for you yourselves, writing to these new believers in Thessalonica, the church there, the Christians there, for you yourselves are fully aware, they're aware of these things because the Apostle Paul instructed them in these things. So eschatology was apparently important to Paul because he made sure that they would be, these young Christians would be instructed in this. He didn't, you know, it wasn't something like, yeah, we can talk about that later. No, it was an important matter for these new believers because it, it's the foundation. It writes you. It, it puts your focus right as you consider these things and think about these things. For yourselves are fully aware of what? The day of the Lord. So they're aware of the day of the Lord, but they're also fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Will come like a thief in the night. That uh, verb there, will come, it's an interesting one. It's uh, referred to as a futuristic present tense. It's in the present tense, but it's, it's referring to something that's going to happen in the future. So the idea is that it portrays the day then, as one writer says, as already on its way with an arrival anticipated any time. In other words, it's coming and could come this day at any time. It is imminent. It is imminent. Paul says it will come, using this vivid, futuristic, present verb, it will come, and he then says, like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. One writer says this about the comparison here. The comparison to the day of the Lord coming and the thief coming lies in the suddenness and unexpectedness of both events. The thief comes suddenly, and at a time that cannot be predetermined. So the day of the Lord will come suddenly when people are not expecting it. Not expecting it. It says the thief will come in the night. 
in the night. So, again, this is not to be uh, thought that uh, Paul is saying that the coming of the day of the Lord will come in the night, in that sense. It's in reference to the thief. It, um, it speaks really of he comes during this secretive time when people can't see him, and it speaks of the unhappy surprise that is coming and brings to those who are not watching, right, because they're asleep in the night and caught unprepared. He comes as a thief in the night. You don't see him coming. He breaks in and seizes you. One writer says, the apostle reminds his readers of what they know with exactness. They're fully aware of this. That specific information regarding the date for the beginning of the day of the Lord is unavailable to human beings. No prior signal will occur to alert people to the proximity of the day, just as no warning comes, as I said before, as a house-breaking thief enters. The coming of this event then forces people to remain in a constant state of readiness. Of readiness. Looking back now at the text, 1 Thess 5, 3, Paul goes on, while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Peace and security. Beloved people, when the day of the Lord comes upon this earth, people will have a false sense of peace and security. One writer says, instead of anticipating and preparing for the coming day of judgment, by the way, how, how would one prepare for this coming day of judgment? Huh? What? Repent and believe in the only one who can and will save all who believe and trust in him from this coming day of judgment. And that is Jesus Christ. And he saves them as he catches them away at his appearing. That's the only way to be prepared. Being prepared is not doing a bunch of nice things. You know, helping little old ladies. Uh, what are their nice things? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I always choose that one. Helping little old ladies, being kind to your neighbors. I don't know. You know nice things. That is not uh, what prepares you for this day. If you don't, or if you are not, I should say, trusting right now and believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not turned to him, repented of your sin and called out upon him to save you, then you are not prepared. Concerning this false sense of peace and security, by the way, this is, this is why uh, we should be compelled to preach the gospel. 
If people don't believe the gospel, they remain unprepared for this horrific day that could come at any time and will come like a thief in the night. One writer says, a a sense of security will possess the hearts of men up to the very moment at which God breaks the long silence and once again intervenes directly in human affairs. It reminds me of and certainly is related to what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says this, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There's no fear of God in their eyes. Nothing's going to occur. Things are going on just as they always had. No judgment's coming. That's ridiculous. That's silly. And as we continue in history, year after year and decade after decade, the scoffing grows louder. How long has it been? Yet God has designed history in such a way so that every generation would supposed to be looking and anticipating the Lord's arrival for his people and for the inauguration of his judgment upon the world, this fallen world. Back to the text. While people are saying there is peace and security, it says in verse 3, then sudden destruction. So they have a false sense of peace and security. You know, I, I, I shouldn't get away from my notes because you know that's dangerous, but um, I have a hard enough time just finishing what I have. But I was just thinking even this false sense of security. Just think of where Christianity has come. We now have people who profess Christian faith but deny the reality of hell. We have people that profess Christian faith, uh, i.e. Oprah Winfrey, who deny that God is angry or would judge or would carry out wrath. She rejects that type of God. And that's becoming more and more and more acceptable. Yeah, there's going to be, there already is, but there's going to be in an even greater way because there won't be any Christians at this point because they will have been raptured. There will be people with, on the earth in abundance with the false sense of peace and security. Even if they are acknowledging God, they don't acknowledge the truth of him. They acknowledge some other God made up in their own minds. Not the God of the scriptures. Not the God I just read to you about from the prophets. This God is angry towards sinners who refuse to repent. Continue to rebel against him. He's gracious. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is patient. But at some point, his judgment will come. 
While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Sudden destruction. Sudden destruction will come upon who? Them. Who are the them? The same people that are saying, peace and security. Don't worry. There's nothing to worry about. We're good. Sudden indicates that the doom that overtakes them is, again, unexpected and unforeseen. It catches them totally unprepared. It will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Does that need explanation? It is, as you saw there in Isaiah, a common figure for intense pain and sorrow. It's a figure used in the scriptures for intense pain and sorrow. You know, we read in Isaiah 13.8, they will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Just remember that when they wrote this, there were no, like, you know, epidurals. Um or whatever other things you might take. Uh, I cannot personally testify uh, to this anguish. I can only, as a witness to it, uh, begin to grasp. I had to leave the room. My youngest uh, daughter, who had our youngest uh, grandchild. She's not in here, is she? Her husband's right there. I had to leave. I wanted to leave the building. It's, uh, yeah, because she decided not to take anything. So anyway, she, uh, she can relate to the anguish <laughs> and pain. Silly girl, silly, silly girl. <laughs> Thank God for modern medicine and all of that. But anyway, even in Jeremiah 4.31, she's tough, she's tough. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor. It's there too, you see it. Anguish as of one giving birth. There it says in Jeremiah to her first child, you know, especially the first one, right? Another commentator, though, says that besides uh, intense pain and sorrow that this day will bring, illustrated as the labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman, there is also the sense of inevitable certainty. Inevitable certainty. You know, a woman who's... Hi, Janae. Hi. Yeah. Labor comes first. Yeah, labor's coming. Uh, There's no escaping it. There's a suddenness to it. And of course, intense pain. And Paul says, and they will not escape. They, the scoffers, those having a false sense of peace and security, they will not escape. One writer says, inescapable will be the doom falling upon the unbelieving world in the eschatological day of the Lord. The reference is to those who are living on this earth at the time of the Lord's coming in judgment. 
No reference in this passage is made to the judgment of the dead, those that have already passed, although they will certainly follow in due season. As you know, the end of the times, the tribulation, the establishment of the kingdom, there's a final rebellion at the very end, but then comes the great white throne judgment. All the dead are called back. All the unbelieving dead. And they are judged and found wanting because they do not know Christ and they are cast into the lake of fire. To relieve the heaviness, I decided to include verse 4. It also relates to this day as well. Remember, this is a unit. Paul is going somewhere with this. He's getting to verse 6, but we'll deal with that next time. In other words, he, he writes what he writes here to remind them of these things that he might exhort them to a certain type of living among Christians, which we see in verse 6. We'll cover that next week. But tonight, or today, tonight, today I just wanted to deal with the specific phrase, the day of the Lord, and what's found there. But verse 4. But you, who are the you? The Christians in Thessalonica, and by application, we would receive this as well. But you are not in darkness, brothers, brothers and sisters. For that day, what day? The day of the Lord. To surprise or overtake you, is another translation, like a thief. Paul goes on to explain this verse further in verse 5, the following verse, where he says, for you are all children of light, children of the day, not children of the day of the Lord, but children of the day, in reference, children of light. He goes on to say, we are not of the night, including himself, or of the darkness, as it says in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in verse 4, what Paul is doing is telling them what they know, but reassuring them of these things, reminding of them of these things, so that he may say more things as we move through the passage, but... Specifically, that as followers of Christ, as children of light, they would not experience this cataclysmic day of the Lord and his coming wrath. One writer says this, Unbelievers immersed in the realm of darkness will be overtaken, but not they, they being believers, followers of Christ. They are assured that that day here personified, spoken of as a person, will not surprise you like a thief. Come as a surprise and lay hostile hands on them. The day of the Lord as a time of destruction will fall upon those living in the darkness of sin and in estrangement from God. They are separated from him. They have yet to repent and found cleansing in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, righteousness in Christ. Therefore, they are estranged from God. 
But believers do not live in that realm. They have nothing to fear from that day. They will already have been taken up in the rapture. Verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, which is the event that inaugurates the day of the Lord as the day of judgment upon the world. We'll look at it again next week, but you'll see more support for this in a few verses after, in chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. One final quote. It'll show up on the screen. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, okay, so there in the garden where rebellion entered into the world through Adam and Eve, ever since that day, mankind has been in rebellion against its creator. But a time is coming when God will judge the entire world with calamitous wrath to prepare for the establishment of his kingdom, a righteous kingdom. The day of man will give way to the day of the Lord. That final day of the Lord is the time of ultimate divine wrath against sinners for their rebellion against God. Just a few closing words as we've uh, really looked at this text to introduce us to what comes after in this section. But I can make application of just this section as well. I've already mentioned it, but are you prepared? Are you prepared? I can tell you that it is the desire of every authentic and genuine Christian in here uh, that you would be prepared. That you would cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, the mercy of God, the salvation that he has achieved through his substitutionary, sin-bearing sacrifice. You shouldn't think you have time. I'll do it when I'm older. I'll do it later. I could imagine someone thinking, you know, well... Uh, you say these things are simultaneous, so maybe I'll just wait till the church gets raptured, and then I'll make my decision. What if you don't have a chance? What if God just removes all of his grace from you and just lets you go your way right into your rebellion, right into the day of the Lord, which you would certainly deserve? 
So I say that to plead with you. It will come like a thief in the night. Sudden destruction. Are you prepared? Believers, for us, I, a couple of applications would be perspective. Perspective. In the sense that this world is messed up bad, right? I mean, I can't imagine the news. It's like just every week. It's like once in a while we get a week where there's nothing. It's almost like the exception now. You start to feel like things are out of control. Or how long will this go on? Or will it go on forever? Kids killing kids. You listen to all the solutions. No one talks about the gospel. We're going to lock down our schools. Okay. You're going to lock down the malls. You know, lock down every public place that there is. What about the heart that would take a gun and kill other children? Or any weapon for that matter. A bomb, a knife. What about the heart though? Like if focusing on the weapons is going to make the difference. What about the heart that does that? What is wrong? We know what is wrong. When's it going to end? In the same week, I'm just reading through the news and it's the whole week's about Children being stolen, you know, kidnapped in America, and how we need to fight back against that. (laughs) Who steals kids and tortures them? What's going on? It's the heart, beloved, the wickedness. A world that, and a country, in many ways, that has rejected the true God of the Scriptures. They have apostatized. They are idol worshipers. We have people walking around talking about worshiping God, but they worship a false God. And consequently, ethically and morally, they go down the drain. They walk in darkness, not in light. It's enough to make you lose your mind, except I know that none of it's out of control, that the sovereign God is unfolding his plan, and that his day of reckoning will come. He will put all of this wickedness and rebellion down. At the same time, understanding what occurs in that period of time makes me grieve. So on one one level, I have proper perspective, which then can give me peace in the midst of insanity, knowing that it will not always continue like this. God has his purposes, but it's coming to an end, and it could come to an end any time. But again, that means for those unprepared, cataclysmic destruction. So I have peace. Knowing the certainty of these things, I also have pity. Or I should, compassion for the lost. And I should make it my aim with the time that I and we have left to in whatever way I can and when I can make Jesus 
the only one who can rescue a lost sinner, make Jesus known. In word, in deed, in any way, however I can. I think about the first chapter of Acts where the resurrected Lord has now spent a good amount of time talking to his apostles, 40 days, about the coming kingdom of God. How excited they must have been. That righteous kingdom that they would be a part of because they were in Christ. The king would rule and reign on the earth. All other evil governments would be put down. Righteousness would fill the earth. What a, what a glorious time. We would rule and reign with him. So they asked him, is now the time? Right? They're still learning and understanding. He says, now the time? Are you going to do it now? He hasn't ascended yet to his father. He says to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will witness to me about me. You will tell others about the Savior that they, as God has decreed it, according to his perfect plan, would be saved as well in preparation for the coming of this kingdom. That's our business, beloved. That's our business. Don't get so caught up in the stuff, okay? It's not another election that's going to change things. It's not, it's not some peace treaty that's made in, in some foreign land. Nope. The day of the Lord is coming. It's certain. He'll bring an end to all this nonsense. Meanwhile, and by the way, if you're his and you're still here, you'll be caught away. You'll be with him. This wrath is not for you. You have been redeemed. Yes, but either way, there are many who remain unprepared. And God has worked it so that it is the preaching of the gospel through which he saves all those he has chosen to save before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, it is heavy at times, your word. Hard for me to even read these passages as I think about how they, that is in the Old Testament and the prophets, as they characterize this coming judgment. Heavy. Father, I thank you that you have rescued me and many others here from this coming wrath and from the eternal wrath that will follow in a place called the lake of fire. Saving us, redeeming us, wiping away all that stood against us and kept us from you and having, from having fellowship with you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your son, Father. Thank you for that sweet salvation. But Father, this day, as we have read, will come. We know it. It'll come like a thief in the night. For those who are unprepared, they will be seized. They will experience incredible cataclysmic judgment that the world has never seen over a period of time. 
Father, I pray for those even here right now who are unprepared. Father, I ask, I pray, since you're the one who does the saving work to work specifically now, even now, in their hearts and minds, that your spirit would convict them that they would no longer feel peace and security or a false sense anyway. But they would see that they right now abide under your wrath if they are apart from Christ. And seeing that and feeling that and understanding that, that they would flee to the cross in their hearts and minds, running there and calling out upon the Savior, Jesus Christ, to save them. Father, you promise for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, for whosoever will believe, trust in him, turn from their sin, will be saved. May they act according to your promise. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.